Well, good morning to you. Happy Lord's Day. Thank you for being here. Thank you, those of you who are joining us by live stream. I'm grateful to have you with us uh, as well. We're looking at a variety of passages in which Jesus describes the cost of following him. Jesus is beginning to make his way towards Jerusalem, towards that triumphal entry, his uh, last week before his crucifixion. And as he makes his way, he's teaching what, it, what it's like to live as a follower of Jesus. He's re really giving them a taste of things to come for the disciples. Little, the little theologians, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'd like for you to draw uh, for me a picture of money. That doesn't sound very holy at all, does it? But I'd like for you to draw a picture of money from other worlds, any other, any other place, any other nation, any other country, just some, some other place, I guess other worlds. Alien money? Is there alien money? Draw a picture of coins that are from other countries. This passage is very much about those who are outside of our church family and yet still profess faith in Jesus. And I think drawing money from other countries might keep you on track as I preach. Our passage this morning is Mark chapter 9, and we'll look at a short section beginning at verse 38. Would you join me in prayer? Father, would you be with me as an emissary that doesn't belong to himself, an ambassador that serves someone else, a herald that proclaims a message that I have not written. Father, would you be with me? Would you help me to preach your word and your word alone? Thank you for being with us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding that we carry with us into the new week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, our passage is Mark chapter 9, 38 through 41. God's word says this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of our Lord. I want to begin by asking you to think about something that you may not want to think about. I hope that you love Covenant Presbyterian Church. I hope you love this actual congregation. I know I do. But sometimes we think that we have a monopoly on the only good church. Yes, our church is a good church, and in fact, our favorite churches, those are good churches as well. But is that really where you draw the boundary? My church and the other churches that I like those are the good ones. And if we're not careful, thinking like that can blossom into something that's far worse, where we really do begin to think that our church and our favorite churches are the only good churches at all. 
That's kind of a graphic thing to hear just as I begin to preach. And so if your mind's eye isn't there yet, I think this passage will take your mind's eye there. Let me keep going with this a little bit before I state the theme of this passage. You know, those of us who spend, uh, who spent most of our lives in uh, independent churches, churches that are unlike this church before we uh, came here, uh, we run the risk of uh, boasting uh, about the fact that we belong to a different church now. Those of us who spent time in other Protestant denominations or Protestant church traditions, we have a tendency, once we're here, to write those denominations and those traditions off. So, for instance, uh, now that we are Reformed Christians in a Presbyterian church, we may uh, look back and uh, begin to judge a little over harshly those churches who don't teach as clearly on the covenants as we teach. Those churches that don't have a Reformed understanding of conversion those churches whom we think fail to unite very well the Old and the New Testaments, those uh, churches who seem to prefer something other than simple expositional preaching, uh, those churches that seem to make little use of Christ-centeredness in all of their ministries, or those churches that worship in a style that is not the style that we have here. And what happens is we tend to give ourselves permission to look down our noses at churches like that, whatever the that is. Now, I hope that as Christians, we long for an evangelical church that is truly evangelical, a church that follows the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is Latin for alone. And so uh, we hope that the evangelical church in America is a church uh, who finds its only authority from Scripture alone, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, and that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God alone. Now, we want to see that in evangelical churches, but What I often hear a lot of passion about is a passion about why other churches are wrong and why our church is right. And what I miss is the humble insistence that even in our rightness, that rightness will be put in stark comparison to the rightness of the age to come. When we stand before Jesus and we see all of our wrongness very clearly. It's one thing to be right in this present age. It's one thing to be right through the eyes of God in the age to come. All of us will learn a great deal about this life when we stand face to face before Jesus. Here's the theme of this passage. Any follower of Jesus belongs to Christ and to the kingdom of God. Okay, it's the first thing. Any follower of Jesus belongs to Christ and they belong to the kingdom of God. But what that follower needs to know is that the foundation that's laid by Christ actually enfolds others in that kingdom of God. The foundation that Christ lays actually enfolds others into the kingdom of God. I want to say three things about this passage, all having to do with the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of God is large. That's the first thing. And then this largeness humbles us and this largeness benefits us. All right, real simple. And the first main point is the longest one, so rest at ease. The kingdom of God is large, 
and its largeness humbles us and benefits us. Now first, just verse 38. Notice what happens. The kingdom of God is larger than you think. John uh, speaks up. This is the only situation in Scripture in which John is mentioned alone, but probably what's happening here is John and James are both speaking. The evidence for that is in verse 38, that word us. Do you see that? It could be that uh, it's John saying us because it's he and James together. Uh, Very often, John and James, they get a little spunky and they challenge the authority of Jesus. And I think this is one of those situations. It seems as though something is simmering in the hearts of John and James. Both of these are a part of the inner circle, and a bit of the inner circle, I think, is going to their heads. You know what I mean by inner circle? These are the two individuals, along with Peter, that were invited to see the raising of Jairus' daughter. And they're also the individuals with Peter who were invited to the Mount of Transfiguration, which we just saw earlier in Mark chapter 9. And so that inner circle life, it seems to have set in their hearts in an angular way such that they begin to uh, vie for their own leadership. Now, we're going to see that very uh, overtly later. But what they do is they tell Jesus that they saw a person who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Just imagine that. Casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Pretty, Pretty harmless report, isn't it? And it's interesting that these two were unable to uh, stop this. Imagine what this might have looked like, uh, an individual who is casting out demons, um, acting mercifully upon someone who is possessed by demons, and you have, uh, you have John and perhaps James with him uh, trying to stop this man, uh, pull this man aside. Don't act with mercy. In fact, if you want to just consider who John and James are fighting for, well, we have examples in Scripture. We might say that John and James, are, they're fighting for the demons themselves. The demons uh, consistently resist Jesus. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, they say. And Jesus has to rebuke them. He has to stop them. Demons beg for mercy from Jesus. And if John is stopping someone from exercising a demon, then John, well, John's fighting the side of the demons. But he's also fighting the side of the religious leaders of the day. Remember, the religious leaders would say to Jesus, you're able to do this because you yourself are possessed by Beelzebul. They say that you're doing that which is not permitted to do on the Sabbath, and they oppose Jesus. That's what John and James are doing. They're fighting on the side of the demons. They're fighting on the side of the religious leaders. And not only that, they're fighting on the side of the status quo of their age. Do you remember when Jesus, he uh, delivered uh, this man from a legion of demons, and the demons uh, begged Jesus to be sent into a herd of pigs, and 2,000 pigs uh, rush off into the sea? And you remember the response of some in the city, not everyone, but some in the city, they, they just wanted Jesus to leave. And it wasn't merely economics. A lot of money just went into the sea. But there was a status quo. There was an understanding of the world that they were comfortable with, and Jesus was disrupting things. A Canadian scholar by the name of Charles Taylor uh, says that we live in a world that he calls a secular age that is known by the fact that there is no such thing as anything that is spiritual. 
He says that we, have, uh, we live in a reality that is disenchanted. We live as if there is nothing beyond the material world, nothing beyond ourselves, nothing beyond my own identity. Well, there's a status quo that's disrupted by the presence of Jesus. And when you look at what John and James must have been doing by stopping this person from casting out demons, they're fighting on the side of the demons, they're fighting on the side of the religious leaders, and they're fighting on the side of the earthly-minded, the status quo in the world. You've got to think about it this way. This, this is ironic, isn't it? John and James, who do they follow? They follow the vanquisher of Satan's angels. That's who Jesus is. Uh, Their rabbi is the ruler of the cosmos, including the spiritual world. And yet, they oppose his mission by fighting to secure the authority of the demons, the the authority of the religious leaders, and the authority of the earthly-minded in the world. Verse 38 is astounding. And and look, why you think they might be doing this, there's there's a bit of a hint here, and I think it's that very word, us. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Does that us refer to the disciples? Or does the us refer to John and James? Now, there's debate here, but I believe the us refers to John and James. They're trying to stop someone who's doing something because they're not acknowledging that John and James, and Peter ought to be a part of this as well, are not part of the inner circle. And if you're not part of the inner circle, you can't be doing this. As a follower of Jesus, we ourselves might legitimately stop someone from doing something in the name of Jesus. You can imagine that, right? If someone is doing something in the name of Jesus that is clearly opposed to God's revealed will in Holy Scripture, uh, we might want to interject ourselves and stop them and say, you are using my Lord's name in vain. That's not an inappropriate endeavor. They might be taking advantage of the name of Jesus to do that which is displeasing to him. And we would know that by Holy Scripture. But that's not what seems to be happening here. Mark, over the course of this gospel, he has trained us to expect that where there is exorcism, where the demons are being cast out, those are actually markers of the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And when we see it happening in the name of Jesus, and we're pointedly told by Mark that it's happening in the name of Jesus, we need to understand verse 38 is a good thing. It's a good thing that this is happening. Lots of unanswered questions. Where did this guy come from? Uh, How did this guy get this level of belief? How did this guy get this power and authority? There's, There's all kinds of unanswered questions, but Mark wants us to see that this is a good thing. And that the real problem is that John and James don't know the nature of what it looks like to walk as a follower of Jesus. The real problem of John and James is their sense of superiority. They are ranking themselves, and this man is not following us. Now, if we back off from this just for a little bit, we know this by experience, don't we? We know that people in positions of special authority and leadership, they tend to be like this. This is a temptation. Those of us who serve in a leadership role have to understand that if we make a big deal out of ourselves, we're not serving in a leadership role according to Holy Scripture. Let me give you three examples of that real quickly and we'll move on. 
In the Bible, we're told that anyone in leadership, even in their secular work, needs to be the kind of leader that leads by example. Matthew 20 and Mark 10. Anyone in leadership, the broader world in general, the the word here is uh, leadership in the Gentile world, need to lead in a way that is not domineering. That's leaders in the secular world. Leaders in the church deal with this very same temptation. Specifically in 1 Peter 5, uh, elders are called to not domineer over those under their charge, but to instead lead by example. Paul says of his own leadership that his leadership is to promote the joy of those whom he leads, 2 Corinthians 1.24. So this is an indictment or, or a temptation, rather, for those who are leading in the secular world, leading in the church, but it's also clearly taught in Scripture as applying to those who are leading as parents. 1 Timothy 3, we see that elders are to have a a good household management, but that good household management is known by the fact that they have children who are submissive because they are parented in a way that gives children dignity. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 4, and see if that's not what you find there. Children are submissive, but they're submissive because they're parented in a way that affords them dignity. I think this is why Paul says not to provoke our children to anger or to discourage our children by stirring up in them uh, uh, resentment. So these are just three examples of the temptation of leaders to go awry. It's true for leaders in the secular world, it's true for uh, leaders in the church, and it's true for parents. And James and John they're not concerned at all about the individual who is demon-possessed and is being, uh, being given help, nor are they grateful for the radical breaking in of the kingdom of God such that they see the kingdom of God uh, beyond the ministry of the twelve. No. They're just angry because their leadership is not being submitted to. That's their problem. But what Jesus tells his disciples is that that the kingdom of God, it's larger than you think. And because it's larger than you think, you need to be aware that you're not everything. And in fact, the very very reality of the largeness of the kingdom of God does two things. It humbles us and uh, and it also benefits us. First, it humbles us. So that's just verse 38. Look at verses 39 through 40. I think what Jesus wants us to understand is when he speaks, he's teaching them that there is a humility here because of the largeness of the kingdom. Jesus says in 39, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. You know, he's addressing not just the work of this individual. He's addressing anybody who uh, delivers a demon in his name. Jesus is launching off of this uh, one particular incident to talk about uh, anyone who does this. Don't stop him. This man's doing legitimate kingdom work. He's doing something that's not only good, but if we look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, this man who is delivering uh, another from a demon in the name of Jesus, this man is actually working by the authority of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. John and James, they're concerned about losing some kind of star power. They're defending the demons and the religious leaders and the status quo. And and, uh, Mark uses a very optimistic principle in verse 40 as he captures the words of Jesus, for the one who is not against us is for us. Let's not forget what Jesus says. Despite the mystery of where this man comes from and how he's doing this, Let's not forget that John and James, they need Jesus to stop them. If he doesn't stop them, they'll persist in this. They'll continue to lord their authority more and more and more and more. And Jesus, he uses a command word and he stops them. But the, the very fact that Jesus stops them is so merciful. It's necessary because their instinct is wrong. John and James, they're assuming that the only real work in the kingdom of God is the work that's done right before their eyes and has the authority of their hands. And Jesus, he says, stop. And he humbles them, doesn't he? And it should be humbling for us as well. We also get trapped in that notion that if there's real kingdom work, um, I'm ascertaining it with my eyes and it has something to do with my own hands. I'm, I'm engaged in it somehow, even if it's by approval. And one commentator says this. He says, look, they're stopping a guy who is delivering another person from a demon. But if you go back not very, not very far, Mark chapter 9, what do you find there? You find that the disciples themselves were unable to help a man whose son was possessed. The man says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and there were not, they were not able. And this unknown figure, he doesn't seem to have that problem, does he? He is casting out demons, and look, it's plural multiple demons, and he's casting them out. He's exercising a vibrant ministry in the kingdom that looks better than the ministry of the twelve. That should just humble us. Put everything into perspective. John Calvin ponders if the disciples hadn't been more devoted to uh, their own glory, that things might have been different. But no, the disciples are devoted to their own glory rather than the glory of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Hmm. Well, I want to say something that's a little bit controversial. Those of you who know me know that I'm not a very controversial person. But I want to say something controversial, mostly because Calvin said it before me, and I trust Calvin. Calvin wonders aloud this. He says, so far, these individuals who are doing work in the name of Jesus, they're useful and they're profitable. And then Calvin goes on uh, to say that maybe there's something here that we ought to learn from this. Maybe what we ought to learn is this, is that we shouldn't raise a quarrel unless we're absolutely constrained to do so. Maybe because there's other kingdom work that's happening out there, good things, maybe we shouldn't raise a quarrel until we're absolutely constrained to do so. 
don't fight unless you utterly have to. Knowing the essentials of the gospel as they are revealed in Scripture clearly, knowing the essentials of the life of the church as they're revealed in Scripture clearly is actually very liberating. It liberates you from having to quarrel about every little detail about someone who is doing something different than you in the kingdom of God. I offer this as an illustration because it's personal, but I think it's yours as well. I love being reformed. I love being in a Presbyterian church. I received my livelihood from a reformed Presbyterian church, worked towards and sustained exams to be ordained in this wonderful, delightful, reformed Presbyterian church. But I was converted by a Baptist. That troubles my thoughts none at all. A man doing ordained youth ministry in a Baptist church converted me. By God's grace, alone, through faith alone, all that. And how strange that many of us would look down our noses at the, at the kingdom work of others without remembering maybe those others had something to do with my own walk. Maybe those others have something to do with the walk of my family members who are perhaps less precise in their doctrine or in their purity of worship, yet are walking with Jesus Christ because of the work of that church. And let me uh, offend just a little bit more before moving on. How many of us spend the bulk of our quarreling time not with those who are outside, but those who are inside? That, too, is a great anomaly. How amazing it is that we can spend the bulk of our theological quarreling actually with people who are members of our own denomination and make vows to follow the same confession of faith that we follow. It's controversial, right? We ought not to raise a quarrel till we are constrained to. That's from John Calvin. Jesus stopping John and James is good because it humbles them. And it's good because it humbles us. Now lastly, there's this. The largest of the kingdom of God humbles us. The largest of the kingdom of God actually benefits us. Look how, how Jesus, he shifts gears in verse 41. Uh, he seems to be addressing a matter that's uh, different than this one individual who's out there uh, casting out demons. He seems to be imagining someone else in verse 41. Uh, John and James, they tried to stop someone. But now Jesus uh, turns it around such that that someone who they tried to stop is now actually coming to their aid. Verse 41 is probably a different, a different person, certainly a different principle. But John and James are trying to stop someone. Jesus, uh, uh, or stop someone from delivering, uh, delivering an individual from demons. And, and Jesus, he turns that person now towards them and he says, this is a person who's giving you a cup of water to drink. John and James were showing no mercy at all to that individual possessed by demons. And rather than uh, applauding this man, praising God for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, rather than do that, they stop the man who is uh, delivering them from those demons. That's not merciful at all. And yet John and James, Jesus says, are going to be the recipients of those outside of the twelve who come to give you a cup of water. 
The reality is that the local church needs other local churches. The local church needs to learn how to set aside differences just long enough so that we can receive the good that others have for us. Now, it's true that in times of tragedy, this is usually when the church shines brightest. That happened in our own community with the tornadoes. Various churches were setting aside their doctrinal differences that they might work together for the sake of mercy. Tragedy often motivates this. But why just tragedy? Given what we find in verse 41, why just tragedy? Why not also evangelism that we join with other churches because we believe the gospel is so meaningful that it is the singular power of God unto salvation? Why not working together with these local churches that we might benefit one another with evangelistic aims? Well, there's something that's critical in this uh, passage that I think may be offensive to those who are not followers of Jesus because whatever you say about 41... It's not about uh, Christians working with non-Christians, is it? It's about Christians working with Christians. Non-Christians here at the end of our passage, they're not addressed. Notice that in this passage, Jesus calls himself the Christ. This is the only overt example of Jesus using the title of Christ for himself in all of the Gospels. This is the only overt example Jesus calls himself the Christ. And Jesus says that the very essential of what it means to be a Christian is that you belong to someone else. You belong to the Christ, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of many. That's who you are as a Christian. Now, we celebrate that. We delight in that. Yes, I agree with Apostle Paul. That's who I am. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Yes, I agree. But that belonging to Christ is not something you own. Others also belong to Christ. And the offensive part to those outside is that Christians are called to have a special care for other Christians. That's very clear in verse 41. It's not that we're ignoring the outside world, but it is that Christians seek out other Christians. And as one professor told me, they embrace Christianity wherever they find Christianity. Because these individuals, too, belong to the atoning one, Jesus Christ. This this really concerns our motivation for hospitality and mercy, particularly to other churches, doesn't it? The largest of the kingdom of God, it humbles us, to be sure. But the largest of of, of the kingdom of God actually benefits us because we're not alone. We live in a world where we feel more and more marginalized, more and more isolated, but we're not alone. There are Christians all over the place. And if Christianity is snuffed out, we think, in America, it's not snuffed out across the world. There are Christians everywhere. Any follower of Jesus belongs to Christ and to the kingdom of God. And the foundation that Jesus Christ lays for that kingdom enfolds many, many, many others. The kingdom of God is larger than you think. 
and the largeness of the kingdom of God ought to humble you. But you also should see that the largeness of the kingdom of God benefits you. Praise God this morning for churches that aren't covenant Presbyterian church and denominations that aren't the Presbyterian church in America. Praise be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, uh, here we are, uh, one small little parcel of your great kingdom work. How small and pathetic we are. No matter how right we feel we are, <laughs> who are we? Well, we're a collection of individuals that belong to Jesus, and we're not alone. We thank you in his name. Amen.